Hello, and welcome to episode 27 of The Lieberland Show. I'm your host, Adam J. Carswell. Today we are joined by Stephen Wood. Stephen is the vice president of the Lieberland Foundation. Steve, thank you for joining us. And do you have any opening remarks for our listeners? I don't think I do. I'm glad to be here and glad to be helping out with the Lieberland cause. Definitely excited to have you because I know we've got some cool things to talk about. So let's kick it off. Steve, how did you begin your journey as a Lieberlandian? So I remember hearing about when Lieberland was founded several years ago. I had long thought it would be a great idea to start a new country that was based on the principles of freedom and liberty, which incorporates a lot of the lessons that we've learned from the American experiment and try to prevent the new nation from sliding towards a collectivist, totalitarian police welfare state, which unfortunately seems to be what often happens to really great nations. And it seems like Lieberland was worth keeping an eye on. So I kind of loosely followed the developments as they were announced, but I never dove deeply into the weeds to learn about the nitty gritty of how things were progressing until around last year when I connected with Lieberland's Ohio State Representatives. So for a few years, I've been building a startup that automates and simplifies the process of tracking changes in laws over time and how they vary from place to place in various jurisdictions. And since my college career ended, I've been starting, I started work in the pro-liberty grassroots advocacy movement. And I was trying to reconnect with a lot of the people that I used to work with and some of the people that had moved into the organizations that I was associated with back then who were more closely involved in that work. And at least in my mind, my company's service had some pretty direct applications for those kinds of organizations, among several others. And I was having coffee with a woman, and it came up about the topic of Lieberland. And she was pretty surprised and happy that I'd actually heard of it. And she happened to know Joey, the Ohio Lieberland representative, pretty well. So she put us in touch. We linked up a couple times over the next several months and had now sat down and had some conversations. And started to learn a lot more about the finer details of how Lieberland was growing. And it seemed like things were growing pretty solidly. And I would have loved to have contributed. And I wasn't really sure how I could actually do so in a real solid, tangible manner. But then one day over dinner, it just happened to come up that Lieberland was looking to start a nonprofit that they could run their humanitarian efforts through. And that that effort had been languishing for a couple of years, even, since they didn't really know anyone who actually knew how to do this. Hmm. Uh, as it happens, I had previously started several other nonprofit 501c3 organizations and had worked very closely with the financial teams for a couple of big ones earlier in my career. So I agreed to help get this project moving. And after that, things happened pretty quickly. The very next day, I was on a call with Lieberland's U.S. action team to help get the ball rolling on getting IRS tax exempt status. Yeah, yeah. And before we even met, I think I told you in a, in a message or a text that I had heard about you in a positive way, uh, meaning that you've been doing a lot of great things to advance Lieberland, including this project. Tell yeah, us I'm a real surprise. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> um, talking more about gaining that tax-exempt status, how, um, you know, what is that, what does the vision there really look like? What, obviously, there's a purpose behind it, and it's probably to obtain ta- uh, tax-exempt uh, scenarios or situations, but how is it really going to benefit Lieberland? So, uh, one of the major things that we're trying to do right now is get recognition from a whole bunch of other organizations and nations, specifically, that we are a legit c- country and we're doing good things. 
So the vision for this organization is that it helps develop a system where humanitarian efforts can alleviate human suffering so people can live a dignified existence in a more peaceful world. And the mission to that end is to serve as a charitable and educational organization that allows freedom-loving people to channel their generosity into needs-based humanitarian assistance and other benevolent endeavors to base by based on the principles of voluntary action to promote self-help through education about entrepreneurship and markets. One of the first things that we're doing right now is actually the fourth anniversary was just the other day, actually, and we had a whole delegation over in the vicinity of Liberland, and we made some really good connections down on the ground in Serbia with some organizations and I think orphanages specifically. They could really use a lot of help, so we're looking at ways that we can help get them resources to be able to educate themselves and help themselves and basically build a better future for disenfranchised and underprivileged individuals so that we can actually show that, hey, we are legit, we are doing good things, and we want to make the world a better place. This isn't just a publicity stunt. Yeah, absolutely. In regards to the anniversary, we had people there talking about this project and discussing it. Were you? Did you happen to get to go to the anniversary yourself? No, it was a little bit short notice for me. I would have loved to go, and I'll probably be there for the fifth, but I wasn't able to make it this year, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's pretty tough for some of us to hop across the Atlantic casually and, and be in the, the Serbia-Croatia area. So, I, you know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't there either, but fifth, fifth year, I've got plenty of notice and time to prepare for it. So, Steve, can you tell us about a unique experience now that you've had since working with Liberland? Well, for one, I've never started a company in Florida before. They have some interesting requirements that I've never seen in any other state. And I've set up businesses in a couple. But we tried, we decided to formally incorporate the nonprofit in Florida for a couple reasons. So navigating that maze has been kind of a learning experience. But that aside, I'd say the most unique thing about working with Liberland so far is how much spontaneous order is involved in this whole process. There isn't anyone sitting at the top just handing out tasks for people to accomplish in service of some vision like you see with most organizations of at least more than one or two people. Everyone that contributes to Liberland basically shares a similar vision and jumps in to help out however they can and whoever they're best able to do so. You hear about something that needs to get done and you realize that, well, I'm able to do that pretty effectively and you just do it. It's really refreshing, and there's a lot of extra benefits. For one example, if something doesn't, if something needs to get done and there's nobody on the team right away that's particularly good at doing that, it actually doesn't get done, <laughs> which is a good thing in a sense because that means that nobody gets assigned to a task that they don't know how to do or they don't feel comfortable doing. Everything gets done right the first time rather than just sloppily thrown together in order to meet some manager's KPIs or performance metrics. Since that doesn't happen, you don't have to pay some high-priced experts or consultants to come in down the road to tear everything you've already done apart and put it back together after things inevitably don't go right. Another benefit of that model is that it builds really solid institutional knowledge since the people that are building everything are a part of Liberland rather than just a third party that was hired to show up and help out with one task before running on to some other contract. Mm. And that's huge. It really sucks when everybody who works on something moves on to another project and they can't be reached for input when you inevitably have questions. And Liberland seems to work really well to adapt 
those sorts of issues that plague at least every other organization I've worked with and I work hard to keep out of my own. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely um, sounds like a unique dynamic. And I'm sure, as we mentioned, it got to be a unique experience to maybe some other projects that you've worked on. Speaking of those other projects, what else does your professional background look like, especially leading up to Lieberland? <laughs> I feel like I've done a little bit of everything at this point. So okay. I got my bachelor's and my master's in political science about a decade ago, 2009, right? As the Great Recession was pretty much at its peak. Uh-huh. And during that time, I've been doing some development, software development and debugging for radiation detection software as a subcontractor for the EPA while I was going through school. And during grad school, I also had an internship at a market research firm. But after I got out of school, I was bound and determined to do something that was related to my degree. So it's not exactly like there's a lot of job offers rolling in for poli-sci graduates after you graduate. (laughs) And this is 2009, so there's really only one place for me to go, and that was Washington, D.C. Even then, there is a ton of demand for not a lot of openings. So I ended up taking a paid internship in the fundraising department of a free market grassroots advocacy group, handling mail, processing small dollar donations, and pretty much answering phones, very typical intern stuff. I think we did a lot of supply runs as well, going across the street to Walgreens and buying sodas for the big ways. Uh, But I worked my ass off and got promoted a couple months later to full time, and they put me in charge of their donor database. And that was right around the time when I incorporated my first nonprofit, which was specifically for scientific research, as I was trying to develop a new artificial sweetener in my spare time. I had this weird issue with artificial sweeteners, and I was trying to find one that didn't trigger this issue. I thought I had a pretty solid approach, too. As I was working for a large nonprofit, I knew exactly what I needed to do to qualify for 501c3 status, knew which forms I needed to fill out and how to do it. It was a lot of work, but it got done. And being in charge of the donor database meant I had to work with the finance team a lot. So... A lot of long hours sitting down with the organization's comptroller and sorting through all our records, making sure we were 100% compliant with all the various nitpicky laws, regulations, and other impositions by the IRS so that we didn't get pinged in one of our many annual audits. I also learned a lot about nonprofit financial requirements and got promoted again a year later to be put in charge of the tax receiving processes as well as the donor thank you program. And around that time, I also started a couple other nonprofits, but for a different purpose. This was for the amateur sports umbrella exemption, as I was playing this obscure sport called underwater hockey that they needed some assistance, and I happened to know what to do, so I helped them get certified for tax exempt status. Around the end, that was up until about the end of 2011. And at that point, that employer had some pretty major turnover, and I ended up leaving at that time as well and started a business, which was for-profit this time, Mm -hmm. manufacturing and selling little handheld lasers. They really sold themselves, though, because all I'd have to do is go sit down in a bar and pull one out and start melting plastic straws or lighting people's cigarettes. And then they would pretty much sell themselves. Uh, But I still wanted to do something with my degrees. So I started doing a bunch of legal, regulatory, and policy research for a national trade association. And the idea there was to show how much variation there was at the state level because they, as an organization, were trying to get national standards. A lot of my research ended up forming the basis of several state and federal laws, but the organization 
as most organizations tend to have happen eventually. It's all on hard financial times. And my entire department pretty much got laid off except for me. I was offered a project manager position at a startup in Utah building software to manage the organizations in the industry that I've been researching. So I took that, stayed as a consultant to do a bunch of research work for that last employer. And then the startup got bought the same year and everyone in that office got let go. So a lot of turnover, a very short amount of time. Um, but I launched my own tech startup at the time, the one I mentioned briefly at the start here, and used the money from my consulting to pay the bills for that. And then right after that, I found out that my wife was expecting our first child. So I had to take a job. Yeah, a lot of stuff happening all at once. I took a job at the nearby state university, and I was working in their admissions department, managing their recruiting systems, because basically just for the insurance, because my wife has a history of complicated pregnancies in her family, so we needed good insurance. Mm-hmm. It turned out we needed it too. And that university, when I got there, was still using pen and paper to, to manage all their admissions processes, okay. although they started getting a CRM implemented, but the person who was there previously left halfway through and they never got anywhere, so I brought that on to the 21st century. And that was a lot of work. I was working about 100-hour weeks doing the startup and consulting and a full-time job at the university. And it's basically all I did for a couple of years. And it sucked. <laughs> but after about two years of that, I left the university to focus on my startup full-time. And we relocated to Colorado as my in-laws were there. And it was nice to have some assistance with my newborn. So that was very helpful. And one of the reasons I had to do that was because there was never enough money, no matter how much I worked to make the startup work and everyone was part time. So we clearly needed someone to be full time for anything to work. I learned a lot of major hurdles that we ended up having to completely gut everything that we'd already built and we're been rebuilding it. And we're almost done now to make sure that we're able to provide everything that we're trying to do. Also wrote a book about what we're trying to do and the major societal problem. That's one of the major societal problems I'm trying to solve. So that's been a pretty busy couple of years and that's only scratching the surface. Like I haven't even discussed the stints as a nightclub promoter or house renovation stuff that I've done, but that's not nearly as related to anything that I'm doing for Leave the Land. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That sparked like not so many questions in my head that I don't think we're going to have time for, but I am curious what the heck underwater hockey is. What is that? Yeah, I get that question a lot. So the best thing I can say is do a web search. I'm trying to say something other than just Google it. <laughs> but yeah, do a search for underwater hockey. It's a really interesting sport that kind of combines soccer and water polo and hockey. Uh, basically, you've got about a foot-long stick, and there's a lead-weighted puck that's at the bottom of a pool, and you wear snorkels and a fin pair of fins and you swim around holding your breath underneath, knocking the puck around, trying to score a goal. It's uh requires a lot of lung capacity. And yeah. I was a Olympic swimmer. I, well, I didn't qualify. I didn't make the team, but I qualified for the Olympics in swimming in college. And when my roommates heard about that after I moved to DC, they would not stop harping on me to join their underwater hockey team until <laughs> I agreed to do it. So that was how I got into that. But it was really interesting. And I really miss being in the water. There doesn't happen to be any teams where I am right now. But great sport. Highly recommend it. Go underwater hockey. Yeah. Where'd you go to school again? College? Uh, well, University of Cincinnati. Okay. Okay. So you're a bearcat. Yep. I'm a bearcat through and through. 
And you swam there? All my degree. Uh, yes, I was on the varsity swim team for my three years of undergrad. And then I had some time between my undergrad and graduate program because they kind of lost my application. <laughs> so I had to sit out a year and reapply. Uh, they told me they would admit me either way. So I just had to wait. Cool. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a college, former college athlete as well. So it's always nice to, you might be the first Lieberlandian college athlete I've, I've met so far. So I'm happy now. Really? Yeah, they do exist. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm curious too, because I used to live in the D.C. area. What, where were you? I guess this is just kind of <laughs> off the grid question, but where were you living in D.C.? I lived just outside of the Vienna metro station. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep, yep. Yeah, I, I, when my car broke down, I had to take the metro to work every day for like six months. That was fun. <laughs> orange, orange line. That's the orange line. Huh? I said that's the orange line. Yeah, uh, you know, it's been catching on fire a lot apparently ever since they added the silver line, but I don't know if that's still an ongoing problem. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Not not when I was there, but, but who knows. Um, wow. So what advice, Steve, do you have for aspiring Lieberlandians? Maybe someone who's listening to the show for the first time that wants to get involved. What, what advice would you give them? Uh, basically, if you want to contribute, there's no shortage of opportunities to do so. Just jump right in and offer your experience in whatever field it's in. There's nothing that doesn't need doing. Even if what you have to offer doesn't mesh up with something that people are already talking about or working on, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't just toss it out there and start working on it and see if it would be helpful and just make progress. If you don't need to wait to be told what to do to start doing something, you'll definitely fit in with the people who are working on Lieberland. Every little bit of help is appreciated, and everybody has some skill, knowledge, or ability that we're going to need in some way, shape, or form. So if you've got an idea, just toss it out there and offer to work on making it happen. There's nothing stopping you. Um, Well, you have to actually have to be willing to do the work. Mm -hmm. Uh, If all you have is ideas, then I mean, that's great, but it's not nearly as helpful as if you can actually execute on those ideas. Like, obviously, if you just, if you can come up and say, we should raise a billion dollars and buy the land from Croatia and buy recognition. I mean, yeah, that's great. That's ambitious. It's probably worthwhile. But unless you can come up with a concrete way to help raise that billion and make that happen, it's not nearly as helpful. Mm-hmm. So if you can just make suggestions that are things that you actually know how to be doing and can actually execute, that's awesome. Uh, the only other thing I would say that you really need to keep in mind is that this is a game of deferred gratification. Don't expect a lot of immediate instant payback for your work. you got to think of it more along the lines of seeds that you're planting that need to be nurtured and grow into something that will have substantial value and possibly will last for centuries. Uh, there's a lot of impacts to be made now. Things are still relatively early. So is it the time to start jumping in? Absolutely. And thank you for pointing that out. Cause I don't think I've had anyone say it that way so far on the show, but yeah, you know, this is the seed planting phase still. So I think some people that do want to get involved with Lieberland still enter it with that. Uh, what's the right word? I guess instant gratification mindset. I would say the good thing is that that's not the case. I mean, this is something that we're building as you mentioned for centuries. Definitely. And it's hard to not have that instant gratification mindset. It's really beat into our skulls in our modern culture these days, but mm-hmm. that's really not the way to make something that's going to last for centuries. Definitely. Definitely. Well, Steve, where do you see Lieberland in the next three to five years? 
You know, I really hate those kinds of questions. Like, not you personally, but the where do you see X and Y years questions. I've been asked that sort of format many times. I don't think any answer I've ever given has been accurate. There's just so many unknown unknowns in life, and there's too vast to be able to make any sort of prediction like that on a really concise timetable. But, you know, that aside... I do believe that Lieberland's recognition as a legitimate state is only going to continue to grow, especially in that time frame. I mean, the number of people who are working on these projects and that are interested in making this happen grows probably on a daily basis. I know that since I've started working on this, the number of people on the teams have just continued to grow. Like, I feel like every time we have a call, there's more people on it. Right. And there's so many different projects in the works as well. And a lot of currently unfulfilled needs that are not being met by existing nation states, which Lieberland is well positioned to fill being a brand new built from scratch country in the 21st century. So all these various factors make it seem like Lieberland is almost certainly going to be a successful country with a lot to offer the world. Now, is it going to happen in three to five years? I don't know, but I'm sure I'm certain that we're going to see a lot of progress in that time frame. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well, Steve, this has been a great interview. And as I mentioned, I've, I've jotted down like four or five other questions here that I was going to ask you, but maybe we can talk about them later, have you on the show in the future. Uh, what's, the yeah, best, <laughs> what's, what's the best way for anyone listening to follow up and get in touch with you? I, if you really want to, like, if you want to work with the Lieberland Foundation, just shoot an email to lieberlandfoundation at protonmail.com and we'll be happy to listen to any suggestions you have on things that we might be able to do. I uh, monitor that email address as long as, as well as our board of directors, our president, our treasurer, everybody's working on this has access to that. So if you want to directly reach us, that's a great way to do it. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much and, and thank you for joining us today. No problem. Have a great day. Yep. Guys, this was episode 27 of the Lieberland Show. I'm your host, Adam J. Carswell. And today we were joined by Stephen Wood, the vice president of the Lieberland Foundation. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you in the next episode.